Thank you, Carol. Good morning, everyone. Good to see you this morning. In the year 1543, which I know you weren't here for, somebody dropped a bomb on the worldview of that day, and his name was Nicholas Copernicus. He published a theory that said that the world, that the universe did not revolve around the earth. That in fact, the universe is not geocentric, meaning everything encircles the earth, but it's actually heliocentric. Everything revolves around the sun, right? Okay? We all scientifically understand that to be true, but up until that point, that was, that was a new revelation. In fact, everyone assumed or thought that the universe revolved around us. And while we all agree with that scientifically at this point, I think every one of us needs at least one, probably more like multiple Copernican revolutions in our own life. See, every single one of us comes into this world believing that everything does, or at least should, revolve around me. It should be my way, everything should serve me and my desires. We come into this world like little mini narcissists, and life with Jesus is all about learning to grow out of and reject the lie that says that we are the center of the universe, and we learn to, to live in line with the true reality that Jesus reveals. And that's what today's passage is all about that you just heard Carol read. It's a reminder to the followers of Jesus that true greatness is actually found in sacrificially serving others, not orienting your life to be served. If you have your Bibles, and I hope you do, Mark chapter 10, verse 32, open there with me. And as you're turning there, we're, we're coming to the end of an important section in the Gospel of Mark. Chapters 8 through 10 is the longest sustained teaching on what it means to be a disciple of Jesus in the entire New Testament. That's what we've been studying ever since we jumped back in this series late January. What does it mean to be a disciple, a follower of Jesus? And one of the reasons that we find Bartimaeus in this story is that he's given to us as a picture of what it means to be a disciple. See, out of all the people that Jesus has healed... In the Gospel of Mark, we only have one person who is named, and it's Bartimaeus. Some people think that might be because he was actually an early church leader or something related to that, but what we do know for sure is that he's given to us as a picture of what it means to be a disciple of Jesus, because to be a disciple understands who Jesus is, that he's the son of David which is code word for the Messiah, the anointed one, the one sent by God to save, to rescue, and to usher in the kingdom of God. Not only does the disciple know who Jesus is, the disciple also sees very clearly who they are, that they're blind beggars who have only one thing to cry out, have mercy on me, God. In light of who you are and who I am, have mercy. But they do come to Jesus in faith, that faith is simply open-handed surrender Jesus, I, I'm coming to you. I don't have anything to bring you. I don't have anything to offer you. But I'm still coming to you because I believe that in you is hope. I have nothing else. I'm coming to you. And in that faith, experiences the healing and salvation of God. But doesn't stop there. But the disciple continues to follow. You see Bartimaeus throwing off his cloak and following Jesus 
on the way. Wherever Jesus goes, I'm going. Wherever he leads, I'm following. Active submission of the will in obedience, following the footsteps of Jesus. To quote Jesus' own definition of what it means to be a disciple from Mark chapter 8, verses 34 and 35, key way to understand, we must understand what Jesus is saying here. Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves, take up their cross, and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me and for the gospel will save it. That's the invitation of what it means to follow Jesus. And if you have spent your entire life trying to find your life, trying to make much of yourself, to make a name for yourself, to control your life, it's not working, I promise you. And the invitation of Jesus is to lose your life by giving it to him. And in giving it to him, you'll actually find real life. And if that's where you are today, if you've never given your life to Jesus, our prayer is that, the, that through all that we're, is being done, all that is sung, all that we're saying, all that God's word teaches, that you would lean into that invitation. That you would accept Jesus, that you would trust him and follow him, recognizing who he is, who you are, and turning to him and asking for mercy. That's what it means to be a disciple. But for those of us who have already said this has taken place, the rest of the passage pushes in on us and says there is no such thing as a disciple who is unchanged. To be encountering Jesus, to follow Jesus, means that you will begin to look and live and think and be like your master, like the one you're following. And this passage leans in on one particular aspect of what it means to follow Jesus, which is that we accept his definition of greatness and we follow him into a life of sacrificial service. Let's look at what Jesus is saying here. Mark chapter 10, just the first couple of verses, 32 to 34. They were on their way up to Jerusalem with Jesus leading the way and the disciples were astonished while those who followed were afraid. Again, he took the 12 aside and told them what was going to happen to him. We are going up to Jerusalem, he said, and the son of man, I will be delivered over to the chief priests and the teachers of the law and they will condemn him to death and will hand him over to the Gentiles who will mock him and spit on him, flog him and kill him. Three days later, he will rise. This is not the first time Jesus has said this. In fact, this is the third time in three chapters that he has said this. Three times throughout these three chapters on discipleship, Jesus has reminded his, his followers, pulling them aside, said, this is where I'm headed. This is what life is looking like for me. It's one of the most explicit ones, however. He gives a lot of detail in this passage as to what he should expect and why. Why, why would Jesus say for the third time what he's going to do? I don't think Jesus wants us to miss that his suffering is not an accident. His suffering is not a plan B. It's not a surprise to Jesus. This is his purpose. This is his mission. We later on see in verse 45 that Jesus says, I came to give my life as a ransom for many. To ransom something means that you would pay the price for a prisoner or a slave. That's what a ransom is. It's the price that is paid to free someone, to give freedom to that individual. This idea is used in the Old Testament to describe what God did for Israel when they were enslaved to the nation of Egypt. 
And Jesus takes that idea of being freed from slaves and says, that's what's true of you. You are enslaved to sin if left to yourself. But the good news is I've come to pay the ransom. But the ransom is not paid in silver and in gold, but 1 Peter says it's paid with the precious blood of Christ. Jesus himself came to be the ransom and it would cost him his very life. See, Jesus' goal was always to suffer. It was always to humble himself to the point of death, even death on a cross. And he didn't want his disciples to miss it. And they may have heard what he said three times, but it's really clear in all three situations They had no idea what Jesus was really saying to them and the implications it had for their lives. Because all three times that Jesus says something to his disciples about his future suffering, that this is the point, this is what I've come for, every time the disciples respond in a way that shows they they clearly don't get it. Chapter 8, Jesus first drops this news to them which is followed by Peter pulling Jesus aside and rebuking Jesus. Jesus, that was really stupid of you to say that. To which uh, Peter gets called what? (laughs) Satan. Get behind me, Satan. Clearly doesn't understand what's happening. Chapter 9, Jesus does it again. He tells his, his immediate 12, he says, I'm going to suffer. And it says that they were confused and didn't know and then spent the rest of the walk arguing about who was more important than the other. Which means you won't be surprised at what happens in this third section. Guys, I'm going to suffer. This is the plan. I'm going to serve. I'm going to give my life. Okay, James and John. Hey, Jesus, got a question for you. Verse 35. Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. What a great start to a question. Your kids ever do that to you? (laughs) Hey, Dad, can you say yes? Right, Dad? Man, I hope none of us are dumb enough to say yes to that. There's nothing good that comes after that question. What do you you want us to do for you? Can you do something for me? Just say yes. Jesus answers, what do you want me to do for you? They replied, let one of us, I, I just hear them whispering this, I'm sorry, I just don't want anybody else to hear this, so it's, can you let one of us sit on your right and one of us on your left? You can pick which one gets which seat. <laughs> what are they really asking? Can you acknowledge how amazing I am? Can you acknowledge, I know you like us all, but can you just make sure that we're one and two? Because to sit on the right and the left of the king In his glory are positions of honor. They're distinguished spots. We want to be great. It's actually really embarrassing if you go read Matthew's version of this. Matthew gives a little detail that Mark doesn't include, which is that they bring their mommy with them. It gets worse. Excuse me, can I ask you a question from my boys here? Is there cap? Like, what? I mean, okay, this is, it's actually kind of ridiculous. But think about who we're already talking about. We're talking about James and John. And if you think about the times that Jesus doesn't take all 12 of his disciples with him, for example, when he took just three of them up onto the mountain where Jesus was transformed before their eyes and they saw his glory. When you think about the time where he only takes three disciples up into the room to heal heal Jairus' daughter, he only takes three. And who are two of those three? It's Peter with James and John. They're already at an elevated position. But the human ego is insatiable in its appetite. 
they're already in a place where they have certain special connection to Jesus. They get to witness things, but it's not enough for them. No matter how much we give ourselves to our serving ourselves, to wrapping our lives around our desires, our comforts, our pleasure, acquiring more power and comfort, it will not satisfy those hungers. It will only make those hungers greater. You will never have that thirst quenched. You will always need and want more. Self-service is what we see here, and it is the default of human nature. Our default worldview is to believe that the world revolves around me, and I will fight and resist any Nicholas Copernicus who wants to come in and tell me that it doesn't. It's human nature to fight for ourselves, to think only of ourselves, to serve me, myself, and I. In fact, I know that it wasn't just James and John who wanted this request, because look how the other ten responded. Verse 41, when the ten heard about James and John's response, what were they? Happy and thought, you know, yeah, actually, you're right. You guys should have those two spots. No! They were indignant. And I don't think it was a righteous anger. I think it was jealousy. Oh, whoa, 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 whoa. Why do they get the spots? They already get to do these things. We should get the spots. They start fighting for themselves. It's human nature for us to think about ourselves first, last, and everything in between. It's not only our human default, but it's the way that we are being discipled. The world is discipling us. We have all kinds of phrases in culture that basically say, you do you. What looks good, what feels good to you, if you have a compulsion and a desire, you should find a way to act on it and everyone should support you and applaud you. We're told to promote our own brand, essentially, on social media. We can customize and create everything to our liking, from fast food, cars, houses, your education. Is there anything in this entire universe you cannot personalize right now? You don't even actually have to go to the store for it. You don't have to put on pants. You can just do that all from home, from your smartphone. Everything is oriented around serving yourself, around convenience, around entertainment. We have selection galore. It's overwhelming. You ever notice how every advertisement on the internet is tailored right for you? There's one time I was talking to Jolie about a pair of shoes I wanted, and all of a sudden I was having advertisements on it, which creates other questions that we're not going to talk about this morning. <laughs> but every advertisement is tailored towards you. What do you want? What are your desires? We're being discipled into this. Self-service is the way of the world, and Jesus actually affirms that that's true in the world around us. Look at verse 42. Jesus called them together and said, you know that those who are regarded as rulers, or very literally as great ones, the great ones in this world, in the world of the Gentiles, meaning the pagan world, lord it over them, or literally tyrannize those under them. And their high officials exercise authority over them. This is the normal expectation in our world that our definition of greatness is to have others serve us. To rule means to lord it over someone, to use your authority and your power in such a way as to make your life easier. To be great is to exercise authority, to flex your power, to make sure you get your way and it turns out best for you. 
That's how we expect people to handle power and wealth. And before we start thinking about those corrupt politicians, before we go out there to those people, those bad bosses who are just mean, those people who overtly prey on the weak and oppressed people in order to make a dollar, before we just shift our minds out there, let's let that do its work on us. Do you use the positions? You may not think you have extreme wealth, extreme power, extreme authority, but you do have versions of those in your life. And the question is, how do you use them? Do you use those things to make your life easier or to be a blessing to someone else? In the places where you do have wealth and power and authority, what's your ultimate end on that? Other questions. Are there acts of service or specific people that you consider beneath you? At work, do you delegate all the stuff that you don't like and nobody likes to the people who report to you because, well, I don't have to do it. I'm the boss. Do you flex your parental muscles to make sure that your kids know you are the boss and you will do what I want? Do you manipulate your spouse using threats or coercion to get sex or to make them do whatever you want them to do? Do you buy houses and cars and clothes in order to promote your own brand, your own status in life because you know that if you do certain things, own certain things, drive certain things, you will have respect from other people? See, it's so easy for us to treat another person as an it, meaning a means to serve me rather than a person made in the image of God. We don't want to do that. We, no one of us would sit here and say, oh yeah, I mean, it's fun, right? But it's subtle. Imagine this uh, purely hypothetical day with me, okay? Um, let's see what I mean. <laughs> I, I'm having a great day, hypothetically. Um, having a great day as a hubby. I have unloaded the dishwasher. I have folded all the laundry. I've made sure that the kids have given Jolie some quiet time. You know, she's really enjoyed a little bit of peace and quiet because we have four and it's a lot and they're just doing things and they make noises. Um, okay, so, but I've, I've taken all that for a period of time. And then Jolie comes back in the room. You know what she did? Hypothetically? <laughs> Nothing. Didn't say thank you didn't go on and on and on about how great of a husband I am, about how lucky she is, and about how, oh, that rest time. She didn't say anything, so then I hypothetically say to her, um, hey, isn't that dishwasher nice? How was the quiet time? Did you enjoy that alone time? To which I get the response, do you want a parade? Like, is that, and I look and I, hey. she didn't actually say that. Effectively, that's what I want though, isn't it? I look at it and I go, I hate parades. They're loud and unless they give good candy, it's the only benefit. But this kind of parade I would like. I want people to acknowledge and since I didn't get it, I turn and sulk into the other room. See, a lot of times our emotions and our response to people when we don't get acknowledged shows what's ultimately happening underneath. Was it actually an act of service or am I using the other person to feed something inside of me? It's subtle. This self-service is really subtle. It can be really obvious, but it can be really subtle too. 
While it may not happen that exact way in your home or your workplace or on your sports team or in your classroom or fill in the blank, those moments happen over and over again. And the more we come to see those things, the more our response is, Lord, have mercy on me. I don't even see the places that I'm just oriented around serving myself and using others in the way it, as a means to do that. Jesus just told his disciples their mission as their leader, their rabbi, the Messiah. I'm come to suffer. And their immediate response is to argue about who the greatest is again. And it makes me wonder who the real blind people in this story are. Who's the real blind person in this room? But what I love about Jesus is his compassionate response to blind people. His compassionate response to people who are so absorbed, who are enslaved to serving ourselves. Look at how he treats the disciples. And you, as you watch how Jesus interacts with the disciples, it's the exact same way you can expect Jesus to interact with you when you are blindly worried about serving yourself. Jesus called them together, verse 42. You know that those who were regarded as rulers, the great ones of the Gentiles, lorded over them and their high officials exercised authority over them. Verse 43, not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant. And whoever wants to be first must be the slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Not so with you. Jesus says, this is not the way of my kingdom. This is not the way for my disciples. See, we believe the lie over and over again that if we get our way, if we serve ourselves, then we will have a better life. And the further you've given yourself to that, to serving yourself and orienting your life around yourself, the more of a lie you've seen it to be and the more empty that life really is. Which is why Jesus goes on and flips the script and says, that's not true reality. That's a lie. The truth is life is actually found in serving. It's in giving. That's why he says later, it's more blessed to give than to receive. And that's really hard for us to believe. Whoever wants to be great among you, he says, must be the servant. And whoever wants to be first must be the slave of all. Jesus is redefining for us what greatness actually is. See, Augustine describes the human, that sin is the human being curved inward on itself. When as human beings made in the image of God, we were actually created to orient our lives around turning outward towards God and towards the world around us. As Jesus redefines greatness, he's saying sacrificial service is true greatness. It's not as though you just do a little bit of service and then you get your greatness. No, greatness is Sacrificial service. And it's that way because that's his path. Even the Son of Man did not come to be served. He did not come orienting his life around, how can I make all of you created beings serve me? He actually came to this earth in order to serve, period. That's the gospel, that the God of this universe looks at you, a blind beggar, and says, I came to serve you. How humbling is that? To be a disciple means you accept that 
and we embody Jesus' way of viewing greatness because that's how our Lord is leading and we want to follow him and trust him that life is actually found in what he says, not maybe what we've been discipled in by the world, not maybe what feels right to us inside. It's denying ourselves, taking up our cross and following him. We refuse to lord our power over others. We choose to humble ourselves even when you don't get a parade, even when you don't get acknowledged for what you're doing. Service, true service is an attitude of our heart. It's not a box we check. And it literally can be anything in any way possible. It can take on so many different forms. It can be a listening ear. It can be advice. It can be with whatever God has given you, whatever resources, time, energy, is an opportunity to serve. You've been equipped to serve others. And when we believe that true greatness is found in serving, we make both plans to serve and we get involved in regular ways, both in the local church and all other places, to serve. But we also have to be careful that we don't schedule our lives with no margin so that when the Lord brings a good Samaritan type moment in front of you, oh, don't have time. Do you have any margin in your life to spontaneously serve in a way that the Lord brings in front of you? It can be anywhere, your church, your community, your family. In fact, it must start at home with whoever you're closest to. If the only time that you serve is done in public with people around you to see it, you are a fraud. You're a fraud. True greatness acknowledges that there is nothing too low for us to do. And I don't actually need the credit for that. I don't need a parade. When you give, do you actually find ways to give in the ways that Jesus said in Matthew 6 so that you literally your right hand doesn't know what your left hand is doing? The reality is, is you will serve someone. The real question is who? You will orient your life around making others serve you or you will orient your life around serving others. And Jesus says one leads to life and one, well, doesn't. Which is why Jesus talked about the cup and baptism. Verse 38 to 40, he looks at James and John who want to be great, and he says, You don't know what you're asking. Can you drink the cup I drink or be baptized with the baptism that I'm baptized with? Don't think Christian baptism here. The, the, the Greek word can be just simply to be immersed in. Can you be immersed in what I'm going to be immersed in? And what's he talking about? Suffering, his death, his sacrifice. And to share a cup with someone means you're sharing the same fate. Can you share the same fate that I, will, that I will experience? Can you give yourself? Can you experience suffering? Are you willing to suffer? Because that's the definition of greatness. While you and I are not called to give our life as a ransom for many, in the same way that Jesus' sacrifice brings about salvation and forgiveness for all who would look to him in faith. You're not Jesus. Let's just be clear on that. But as his follower, you are called to experience and expect the exact same experience. Which means that to serve one, to serve someone else, truly serve someone else, will require sacrifice. It will require death. The death of your desire. The death of worrying about serving myself. The death of needing to be acknowledged and thanked and given a parade for what we've done. 
Because the bottom line question that keeps us from truly serving someone else is this. What about me? If I think about them, who's going to look after me? Our whole life we're told you have to look out for you. But here's the gift that Jesus offers through his death and through his resurrection as he answers that question. Who's going to look out for me? Jesus raises his hand and says, I will. I will look out for you. I have already given you everything you need. You lack nothing. I will look out for your needs. I see you. Now give your life for the blessing and service of others. And those are moments that we actually have to trust. Do we believe that we follow the pattern of Jesus? That when Jesus says to his disciples, I'm going to be put to death, but three days later is resurrection. Do we believe that on the other side of giving our lives for other people is actual real life? Do we believe that resurrection actually follows our willing sacrificial death? That's the question for us today. Will you believe him? Will you trust that laying down your life, that losing your life is how you actually find it? And that if you continue to fight for your own life, you'll lose it in the end. Which means that we cannot evaluate our servantness on how well you serve those who are easy to serve. You cannot evaluate your love for people based on how you love people who love you back. That's too easy. Because they give you something in return. The real evaluation of your servantness is not on easy people, but it's the people that are challenging for you to love. This is where the rubber meets the road because you all have people that feel impossible for you to serve. Well, because it's just them. They're annoying. They're rude. They disagree with me. They have a different worldview. They are sinners as if there's other categories of sinners. They're messy. They're needy. They're hurtful. Everything they say just hurts. They're destructive. They're ungrateful. And I'm not saying there's no boundaries in dysfunctional relationships. Of course, you should have boundaries. But what's your heart disposition towards those people? Those are the people that actually reveal our level of servantness, which reminds me of what Jesus does in John chapter 13. That in John chapter 13, Jesus has all 12 of his disciples in the room. It's the night before he's about to be betrayed. And he takes off his outer robe. He assumes the place of a servant. And he washes all 12 of his disciples' feet, which includes who? Judas. The one who's about to betray him. Do you know what I'd have done? I'd have sent Judas out first. And then I'd have served the 11. Because they're easier. I mean, Peter's still a hot mouth, hot head, you know, all these things. But he's not about to betray me. But when does Jesus wash his disciples' feet? While Judas is in the room. That's the true, tr true test of our servantness. Jesus says, greater love has no man than this, to lay down his life for one's friends. And what's beautiful is Jesus goes from serving and washing his disciples' feet to the next day he actually one-ups that. 
And he doesn't just wash his feet, but he lays down his life for his enemies. Remember James and John said, we want to sit in your right and your left in your glory. Well, when is Jesus' moment of glory? Because what they're envisioning is Jesus on a throne and them sitting on thrones next to him. But Jesus' greatest moment of glory was not on a throne, but it was when he hung naked on a cross and stayed as he gave his life to serve others. That's what it means. Let that sink in. That Jesus' moment of greatest glory was when he was hanging, bearing your sin, serving you. True greatness is not found in being served, but true greatness is laying down our lives because that's the path that our Savior took. That's why Jesus says at the end of John 13, now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also should wash one another's feet. I've set an example for you that you should do as I have done. For no, great, no servant is greater than his master. And he actually says, if you do these things, you will experience blessing, life. The question is, will we believe that? Do we believe Jesus that greatness is found in serving? Because it's the way that he took which is why we turn to the communion table this morning to be reminded again of what our Savior has done to serve us. Let's pray, and then Pastor Bill will come and lead our time of communion. Father, have mercy on us. We are so blind to our selfishness. Would you gently reveal the depth of our need for you? Would you show us the places where we are busy serving our, ourselves and would you change us inside? Would you heal us? Would you free us from our self-obsession? Free us to care for others around us. To remind us that in relationship with you, you have promised to meet every one of our needs. That you have already taken care of us and you will continue to do so. So we are now free to look out for the needs of those around us. We want to see, we want to follow you, we want to be with you. Father, make us those who are eager to serve out of love, eager to humble ourselves before our classmates, our coworkers, our family, our neighbors, and to serve in the way that you have served us. Jesus, remind us in this next moment as we sit at your table of your great love for us and your continued service of us. We love you and we bless you. In Jesus' name, amen.